Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In that Genesis chapter 33, we're starting a new chapter. Chapter 33, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today, God willing, of course. Uh, uh, by way of review a little bit, last week you'll remember that we uh, we we got to a glimpse of a middle-of-the-night wrestling match. All right, a middle-of-the-night wrestling match. And this has been a momentous night all along. If you remember, basically all of chapter 32 was stuff that took place in one evening. Chapter 32 started off with Jacob sending some messengers out. Hey, see if you can find my brother. See if you can find Esau. And if you do, you know, let them know that, you know, I want to get together for lunch or something. And then uh, bring me back word, you know, and they come back. Yeah, we found him. He's got 400 men. He's coming to see you. (laughs) Jacob's like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. So it seems to set off something right then where Jacob's worried. All of a sudden you see these events transpiring or unfolding in, in chapter 32 where he takes his entire estate and he divides it up into two camps. And then the next thing that you see is that he endeavors to pray. He's praying to God, oh, God, please, you know, spare my life. My brother's coming. I'm afraid he's going to come kill me because that was the last thing I heard from him is that he wanted to kill me. And then you remember that after the prayer time, he ended up coming up with a plan of dividing up some livestock and sending these herds of livestock with attendants to go meet Esau and to space themselves out and gave them directions on how they were to do that and what they were to say when they were to come upon Esau and that hopefully herd after herd after herd of these gifts coming his way would, you know, maybe make it so that he won't kill me. And then uh, you remember that after that, he ended up taking his family. He helped them cross the Jabbok River and then he takes all of his belongings. He gets those across the river. This is all in the nighttime. This is all in the same night. And then he ends up alone on the other side on the far side of the river. So he's got all those herds, he's got all those attendants, he's got his family, he's got all his possessions between him alone on the other side of the river and his brother with 400 men on their way. And then while he's over there and he's alone, he's met and wrestles with God. He doesn't know it's God at first, he ends up finding out it's God later. And then the surprise of chapter 32 is that he lives. He's marveling at the end of it because when he realizes I just wrestled with God and I survived. I lived. And in that wrestling match, you had other things that happened in there. You remember that not only was it a wrestling match, it was a long wrestling match. I mean, it took the rest of the night. In that wrestling match, he had his hip dislocated. In that wrestling match, he had his name changed. And then by the end of the wrestling match, the sun is coming up, he crosses the river, and he's limping. All right? And so that's what we've seen in this whole evening. This has been quite an evening. And then now we're moving into chapter 33. The sun has come up. He's limping. He's crossed the river. And where are we going from here? So somebody mind reading verse 1. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. 
So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. So you can tell by the way that this is written. Even in English, this isn't the original language, but even in English, you can tell, uh-oh. You know, I mean, if, you, if, if this is your first time passing through this section, you don't know what's going to happen, you end up reading these words, and uh-oh is kind of probably what you're going to end up mm. thinking. In the Hebrew, it's ever so much more so. You read it in the Hebrew, and it's... It's worded and couched in such a way that you can't mistake the uh-oh, all right? And you're reading it, and you're like, this doesn't sound good. Here he comes. I mean, can he just come alone? He's got 400 men with him. Can't he just come alone? So here he comes. He's bringing his 400 men. And you can hear it. You can see it as we're reading there that Jacob, then his response is what? A fearful response. He takes his estate. He separates the kids. He divides his children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And then verse 2. Somebody mind reading verse 2. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. So here you have it. He's separating the children up with their respective moms, and he's, he's aligning them. He's putting them in a line. And out in front is Zilpah. Probably Zilpah with Gad and Asher. And then next is the next maidservant, right? So that was Leah's maidservant. Not Rachel's maid servant. That was Leah's maid servant, all right? Leah's the one he didn't want to marry. So put her maid out there front with her two kids. And then next is Rachel's maid, Bilhah, and her two kids are Dan and Naphtali. And then Leah, next with her, she's got several boys, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then she's also got the daughter, Dinah. So there's at least six boys and a girl there with mom, with Leah. And then last in line is Rachel with Joseph. And Joseph is the only child named in this. None of the other children are named. He's the only one that's named. Yeah, it's interesting. Can you can you start to feel that maybe there's some favoritism for, yeah, towards Joseph? Yeah, problem starting. Uh-huh, problem starting is a good way to describe that. Yeah, so he's got him in a line. He's not sure what's going to happen. And he's probably arranged it in this order because thinking, well, let's see, I've got myself a buffer between me and my favorite wife and my favorite son. And if my brother has murderous intent on his heart, he's coming this way, and at least he'll have to get through all these other members of my family before he can get to me. It doesn't say that. We're reading between the lines. We're speculating, but it is interesting that he chooses to arrange them in that order. Or he's a real gentleman. Women and children first. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ron, I'm so glad you're back. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Verse 3. Is anybody reading verse 3? Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. So he's going over and he's bowing seven times. But is he in the back now? Where is he? He he went ahead. He was in the back. Remember when he was across the river all alone and we were like, are you a coward? What are you doing? Why are you over here? The threat is out there. Your brother's the threat. The threat is out there. The threat is heading your way. And you stick your family out there. And we are not feeling good because we're thinking he's a coward and he's setting all these people up in front of him. And here, even in this arrangement, it sounds like he's setting them up in a way to provide him some buffer, to provide him some shielding. But all of a sudden, in verse 3, there's a turn of events that we weren't expecting. Jacob now moves up to the head of the line. Jacob now moves up in front of his wives, in front of the maidservants, in front of the sons. Jacob is now leading the parade, if you will. And what is Jacob's attitude? Is he drawing the sword? Is he getting a bow and stringing an arrow? What is he doing? He's bowing. 
He's bowing. His bodily language is saying, even from a distance, you would be able to read a bow as something that's not ready for war, that's not looking for a war, it's not looking for a fight. When you see somebody bowing, even at whatever distance they are apart, his brother would be able to tell, my brother and I are not going to be getting into a battle today. At least in Jacob's mind, that's what his language would say. He doesn't know if Esau's going to receive this. He doesn't know what the reception's going to be with Esau. Esau, for all intents and purposes, could still be murderous. And Jacob is putting himself out there, trusting God. Do you have my back or not? I'm putting myself out there. Let's see if God will take care of me. He crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. One of the commentaries I read actually described the bowing, this type of bowing. They said it's basically the type of bowing where you're standing and you're bowing at the hip. All right, you're bowing at the hip and you're bowing fully forward. I guess in karate, you know, in karate, I did oh. some karate with my little girl. <laughs> yeah. and, and so in karate, you bow, but you, you keep your eyes on your opponent. You watch your threat, but this kind of bowing isn't that same. You're putting your head down and you're, you're looking at the ground as if to say, I acknowledge that you could chop my head off right now if you wanted to, <laughs> and I hope you don't. But you're bowing in submission to the party off in the distance. Now, one bow would have been sufficient. How many times does he bow? Seven. He bows seven times. Seven in the Bible, you'll often see that in association with completeness. And the idea was the same back then, that seven was complete. If you were to, in this case, bow seven times, you were submitting yourself completely. You were submitting yourself seven times. You were submitting yourself completely. All right. So he's doing a word picture in front of his brother from whatever distance his brother can see, and he's basically saying, I completely submit to you, All right, which is kind of interesting because it's already been prophesied that his brothers would bow to him, that, his, that the nations would bow to him. And here we have the unexpected. He's doing the bowing. He's submitting to his brother. Almost as if, I'm, if I'm that brother, if I'm Esau, what would I read into that? Last time I saw you, you took advantage of me. Last time I saw you, you were only out for yourself. You were living selfishly. You took from me my blessing. You took from me my birthright. And now I see this, and I'm probably going to be thinking, I wonder if he's sorry. That almost looks like somebody that is sorry. A change. A change. Good observation, a change. So he's bowing himself to the ground seven times until he comes to his brother. By the way, this bowing seven times, if you're thinking, well, maybe this is just all story and we don't have anything from archaeology to actually support that anything like that actually happened, that somebody would bow seven times. Uh, what I want to show you here is a picture. These are tablets, and they're the Tel Amarna tablets, and they date from the 14th century B.C., so 1,500 years before Christ, 1,400 years before Christ. And on these tablets, it talks about bowing seven times to a king or bowing seven wow. times to a sovereign. And so this is outside the Bible. This is the kind of stuff that helps us to see, hey, maybe the writings of our Bible are trustworthy. <laughs> maybe the stuff that we're reading is actually stuff that was from that period. And here we have historical evidence, archaeological evidence that would suggest, yeah, there's a precedent for it. We see it elsewhere. There's another place for it. I want to talk a little bit about him being in the front. Him being in the front of this parade, and what I should probably do at this time is pass these out. These are fill-in-the-blank forms. You guys know I'm trying to get better and better at, at doing these. Uh, but feel free to take one, pass the rest around. There's some pens there in the middle of the table. And we're going to be filling in our first one in just a few moments here. Because here's, here's what I'm observing here. I'm observing Jacob. I'm looking at Jacob, and I'm seeing Jacob. He's now stepping up. He's stepping in front of the family. And I'm wondering, why didn't you do it earlier? But, hey, I'm glad to see it now. Because what's going on, Jacob is now being the man in the household, right? I couldn't feel good about calling Jacob the man of the household if he's sitting back in the back, letting the children and letting the wives get killed, right? If that's his motivation and staying in the back, I don't have a whole lot of respect for the guy, right? But when you step up and you get in front, 
when you take the brunt of the threat upon yourself, okay, now you're being the man of the house. Good. You should have been, right? I'm thinking of Jacob. He should be the man of the house. There are men in our society. There are fathers in our society. We need to step up. We need to be the ones that put ourselves between the threat and our children or wives and, and the rest of our family. We need to step up and do the manly thing, get out there in front, take the brunt of the uh, threat. And there are people that will probably be listening to this that maybe need to hear that. You need to step up and you need to get in front between the threat and your family. And also, I like how he's showing leadership involves humility. He's stepping up, but he's taking a, a humble attitude toward his brother, all right? And sometimes we don't reconcile that humility and leadership can even go together, but absolutely they do. And so here we have a beautiful picture of that. He's being a leader to his family. He's representing what it looks like to be a good leader, and he's being humble about it, that humility is involved in being a good leader. So what I have there, I have on the first fill in the blank, God resists, God resists the proud. And now you're probably thinking, oh, I know the rest of this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's actually right out of the Bible. James chapter 4, verse 6, second half of verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jacob's attitude here is humility. God's attitude toward somebody who's humble gives grace to them. And I think we're going to end up seeing that that's what's going to happen here. God's going to bless him with grace because of his humility. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus' words have something similar. It says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus teaches us that humility is a part of being a follower of God as well. And then I want to talk a little bit about Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 in particular. Jesus' words, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What would that say to us? It says to us, if we've got a falling out that's happened somewhere, right? And somebody has something against us because of a falling out that has happened. We should not think that our relationship with God is going to be as healthy as it can be unless and until we go and patch things up with the person we had the falling out with. If we're not willing to do that, we're putting up roadblocks that will get in the way of us having a proper, most healthy attitude and most healthy relationship with God. So if there's anybody that you can think of that has something against you and you're going to have an intimate time with God in prayer or have an intimate time with God in worship, and you can think of somebody that has something against you, you need to make steps to go and take care of that. But Esau, now tell me if my version's right. I'm not sure if it is here. But Esau ran toward Jacob, and Jacob ran toward Esau. Is that what it says? No. Oh, Esau ran. Wait, what did Jacob do then? Did Jacob run? Bowing, probably. He's bowing. We got bowing going on. And what else do we have? He's bowing and he's limping. <laughs> so we've got the bowing, limping man, and we've got the running man, right? So here comes Esau, and he's running toward Jacob. Now, if Esau's got bad intentions, does Jacob have a, a hope of getting away? No. Not when you're bowing, not when you're limping. <laughs> right? So we've got him bowing and then dragging the foot and then bowing and dragging his foot toward his brother and his brother running towards him. I hope Esau has good intentions on his mind. I just don't know yet. Right? And uh, so running to meet him, even those words to meet him, we don't know whether for good or bad. And then what happens? The second half of that verse and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him and they wept. This is 
This is a surprise here. The surprise of the last chapter was what? That he met God, that Jacob met God and didn't die. And the surprise of chapter 33 is that Jacob met his brother Esau and didn't die. <laughs> All right. So here we have Jacob and Esau and reconciliation has started between these two. What happened in Esau's heart? Esau's changed since the last time he saw his brother. It seems pretty clear as we look through this that something happened. Something happened in Esau's heart. Matthew Henry reminds us of Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And it seems here that that would fit with this passage, where Jacob seems to be living in such a way that God has done a work in his heart, and now he pleases God. And now God is making even his enemies, his own brother who wanted to kill him, to be at peace with him. This also reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 15, and this was brought to my attention by several different commentaries. Luke chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son and how it ended? The prodigal son decided, you know what, this is a miserable life I'm living right now. I'm coming to my senses, I need to go back home, but I don't know if my father will accept me. And he rehearses a speech of how he's going to repent when he sees his father. Father, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Won't you just take me as one of your hired hands? I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. And as he's preparing his speech, as he's making his way home, what happens? You remember, his dad sees him, and his dad sees him from afar off. His dad sees him from afar off, and what happens? His dad runs to him. His dad runs to him, and if you look specifically at verse 20, it says this, But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It's the same language that we have here in this story of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. Most of the commentators that mention this actually suggest that Jesus had the story of Jacob and Esau in mind when he told that parable of the father. But then why would Jesus change the characters? Why didn't Jesus just use two brothers? Why did Jesus change it to a father and a rebellious son coming back in repentance? What do you suppose? Just as the father forgives us, we should forgive our friends or, uh, you know, somebody of our equal. Exactly right. He changes it because he's telling the story of God the father and his forgiveness and acceptance of the repentant child. And we can all relate to that much better than we can relate to being one of two brothers. So Jesus takes the story of the two brothers and the reconciliation that's afforded in that story, in this story that we're looking at today, and he changes the characters to the father and the child because we all now can relate to it, because we all now can see a picture of what? It's God the Father who's the one that wants to do the running toward us, to embrace us, to fall on our neck and to kiss us and to forgive us and to welcome us back. He sees our heart and he knows that we have repentance on our heart and he doesn't even need to hear it. And he brings us back knowing that we've come back with the proper attitude. Yeah, exactly right. Here's what I would say on the second one there on the seeds of application, fill in the blank, run toward forgiveness. Run toward forgiveness. And just as God would be forgiving toward us, we need to be willing to forgive others. And you can't, you cannot read the Gospels without running across it in several different places. How God says... We need to have attitudes of forgiveness towards others. Run toward forgiveness. He will run toward us in forgiveness. We need to also extend that same free forgiveness towards others. Genesis 33, 5. Somebody might reading that one. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? 
And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. So here we have Esau. He's looking around. He's like, well, Who are all these people? Last time I saw you, you left. You were all alone. Who are these people? Who's the, who are the women? Who are the children? And it specifically says, you see there, he sees the women. He sees the children. That's who he's asking about. And Jacob gives an answer to him only about the children. He doesn't say anything about the wives. It's kind of like, hmm, that's, that's weird. Why didn't, why didn't he say, oh, and these are my wives? I mean, little detail that he leaves out. Well, if you think back to when Jacob left 20 years before, the reason he left, well, we know the reason he left, because A, your brother wants to kill you, <laughs> right? And B, you're not married yet. I know, let's use this as a ruse. We're going to send you off to my father's country. Remember his mom talking to him. I'm going to send you off to my father's country to get a wife. We'll just call it, that's the reason for the trip. You're to go get a wife. And then I'm going to sell the idea to dad. So dad will send you on his way. So she goes to dad and says, hey, you know, I don't want my boy to marry a loser wife like Esau did. Esau's wives are losers, right? <laughs> you remember that was the pitch. And dad was like, all right, and we'll send him off. And then they send him off. So now when he says, hey, who are the women and the children? He answers about the children. But the wife thing, uh, let's not talk about wives. Because the wives was kind of a touchy subject when he left. You know, So that's probably the reason he doesn't address the wives thing. Regarding the children, if you do the math, the children here, the oldest one, they've all got to be under 14 pretty much. All right, So you're looking at 14 years and younger. All right, so pretty young children, as you can see by doing the math. And then verse 6, then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. So this is Zilpah with Gad and Asher. This is Bilhah with Dan and Naphtali. So they come forward, and the moms and the children bow down. Verse 7, and Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And then it says in verse 7, and afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near. And they bow down. Once again, Joseph is the only one named. And once again, Rachel and Joseph seem to have a favored place of sorts. And in the Hebrew, the wording there that we have translated into English, mine says afterward Joseph and Rachel came near, could actually mean Joseph escorted Rachel. Hmm. Do you suppose we're seeing some foreshadowing of some issues that are going to come having to do with favoritism? We are. Favoritism with Joseph being the only son named among the 11 that we've got so far, the 11 sons that we've got so far yeah this is a little bit of foreshadowing that we're being given we can already start to see that there's going to be issues here and uh sure enough you would be right if you think that's going to be the case as we move through the book of genesis uh but here we have everybody's coming forward everybody's bowing down one of the things that i see here is that the parents are bowing down and the children are bowing down and this is appropriate in this setting it's appropriate behavior for them to bow down in this setting I want to talk a little bit about parents and children and etiquette, all right? I'm sure all of you are like me. You've been there. You've been to the restaurant, the nice restaurant to have a nice meal, and nearby is a table with some children who you're thinking to yourself, they're not behaving appropriately for this setting, right? And it, it's true. There are settings where we, as parents, should be teaching our children proper etiquette, proper behavior in those settings, so I would suggest, as parents, we should be teaching our children what proper behavior would be out at a nice restaurant. We should also be teaching our children what proper behavior would be, say, if they go to somebody's house. It's a different kind of behavior, but it's there's a proper behavior and there's an improper behavior. As parents, we should be teaching them that. There should be a proper behavior that we should instill in our kids when they go out with friends. There's a different kind of behavior that we should be teaching our kids when they visit somebody in a hospital. 
of certain behavior. All right. I'm talking about different kinds of behavior, but one of the things I want to emphasize is that this isn't something we just tell them. It's not something we let them figure out for themselves. It's something that we show them. They will learn more by us showing, by us modeling that. All right. So we can tell them, yeah, that's great, but unless we reinforce it by showing them, by modeling it for them, it's going to be awkward. All right. So we should be modeling appropriate behaviors. How about appropriate behavior at a table while somebody's saying grace, while somebody's thanking God for the food? We should be modeling what appropriate behavior looks like in that setting so that they will have and be able to see what it looks like. How about appropriate behavior in a congregation while somebody's preaching a sermon, while the pastor's preaching a sermon? How about appropriate behavior in a worship service? Have an appropriate behavior in prayer. We should be modeling appropriate behavior for our kids to follow. Just as the parents bowed down with the kids, and that was appropriate behavior in this setting, we should be modeling, not just saying. Okay, sweetie, I want to tell you that uh, when we're praying, this is how you behave. Well, Dad, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be conviction. All right, we should be modeling it. It should be something that when we say it, it's something they've already seen and will be seeing again. So I want to challenge you. When you're somewhere, let's say a worship service, when it's time to pray to God, not at church in the formal setting so much as I'm thinking, how about in your home? We should be modeling appropriate behavior with prayer time with God in our own home. We should be modeling appropriate behavior when it comes down to a worship service all right, or worshiping God. They should see that not just when we're at church, but they should see that that's part of who we are and that's appropriate behavior. So different appropriate behaviors in different settings. We should be training up a child in the way that they should go by modeling those appropriate behaviors. In fact, you'll see there on the third fill in the blank, parents train up your children in the way that they should go by modeling it giving them something to see, not letting them just figure it out for themselves, not just telling them, but modeling it. Parents, train up your children in the way that they should go. That's actually right out of Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Verse 8. Somebody mind reading verse 8. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. What is Esau referring to when he says, all this company, which I met? What is he talking about? All the herds. Exactly right. He's talking about those herds. So he's like, hey, you know, it was kind of hard to get to you. I had to find my way through the sheep and I had to find my way through the goats. You know, he's basically saying, well, what's the meaning with all these herds, the animals that were between me and you? And Jacob, it's kind of interesting. He's pretty forthright in his answer. He kind of lays it on the table. He just kind of tells it like it is. He actually says, these are to find favor in your sight. <laughs> he's admitting that he's basically trying to bribe his brother, right? But it's kind of interesting because this is a Jacob we're not used to seeing who's forthright about stuff. He's usually, you know, yeah, he's the deceiver. And here he's coming right out and saying it. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary says this about kind of what we're seeing going on here. In the East, the acceptance by a superior is a proof of friendship. And by an enemy of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means if his brother Esau accepts him, then it's almost as if, you know, because you saw the the bowing and everything, he was bowing to Esau as the superior in this setting. It's almost as if a superior, if he accepts Jacob, then it's it's proof of friendship. And Esau as an enemy, an age-old enemy, if he accepts him, it's reconciliation. All right? So Jacob has the herd sent off ahead, And if his brother accepts those, if he accepts the humility that he's offered and the herds that he's offered, then that means friendship and reconciliation. So for Jacob, there's a lot on the line here. 
Verse 9, somebody mind reading that one. But Isa said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So if you're Jacob, and you've got to get your brother to take it, <laughs> and your brother says no, all right? There's a little bit of tension here, but there's also politeness. There's a built-in cultural politeness going on. You're not to just accept a gift. You're supposed to resist getting it. Initially, that's what you're supposed to do. You remember we ended up seeing this in chapter 23 with Abraham, and Abraham's wife Sarah died, and he wanted a place to bury her. And he went and he found a cave in somebody else's field, and he wanted to buy the field. Well, you just wanted to buy the cave. And he found out who the owner of the cave was, and he went to the city gate where everybody you know makes their business transactions and he approached he found out it was a guy named Ephron the Hittite and he called for Ephron the Hittite and they end up having this negotiation process and he says I want to buy the cave that's in your field I want to buy that cave that's way off at the edge of your field so I can bury my wife and Ephron says oh you know what I give you the cave and I give you the field you don't have to buy it I give it to you right and then Abraham says, no, please, I want to pay the full price for it. What, you know, I want to pay the full price, and he wanted just the cave, but now the field's getting pulled into the mix, too. And Ephron says, oh, you know, it's worth 400 shekels of silver. Yeah, right. It's worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you, you know? And Abraham ends up having to pay 400 shekels of silver, which was more than he should have ended up paying. And he's buying a field and a cave when he just wanted the cave. So there was this whole negotiation process where Ephron the Hittite engaged in the same kind of thing we're seeing here. You refuse. No, 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 no. I give it to you. I give it to you. He doesn't really mean I give it to you. That's the culture. You refuse it at first. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't want your money. Don't give me your money. I refuse your money. All right. So here we see Esau. No, 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 no. I don't take your herds. Don't give me your herds. I don't want your herds. All right. So not only is it polite and considered culturally acceptable and and appropriate to do that to refuse it, but there's also this tension because if he doesn't take it, are we going to see a satisfaction of the reconciliation that we're looking for? So he says, no, my brother, I don't want it. Don't don't give it to me. Verse 10. Somebody might read verse 10. And Jacob said, nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face, and as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. I'm guessing you're reading King James Version. <laughs> Some of the things that are kind of interesting what he, and the words that he's choosing to say right here, it's as if I'm seeing your face, it's like I'm seeing the face of God. What do we just have? He named the place Peniel where he had the wrestling match with God. Peniel meaning the face of God. And you remember, did he see the face of that adversary, the person he was wrestling with? He never actually did. It was at nighttime. And so now he's saying, seeing your face, it's almost like I got to see God's face last night. <laughs> up until just a few minutes ago, actually, when the sun was coming up. All right. Verse 11. Somebody might reading that one. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob assisted, Esau accepted it. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. The very first opening part of that verse where it says, please take this present, The word there, if your version has present in verse 11, and if your version has present in verse 10, one of the things I want to just draw your attention to is in Hebrew, those are not the same word. The word that's translated as present in verse 10, it's a common word. It means gift. All right. In verse 11, the Hebrew word that's used for present is the word for blessing. All right. Why why would Jacob mix it up? Is he just kind of, you know, showing that he's got a bigger vocabulary than you might expect him to have? No. This is actually strategic. This is tactical. So now with the idea that there's something tactically going on, why would Jacob in verse 10 tell his brother, please accept this present gift? And then in verse 11 says, take this blessing. 
take my blessing. Why is that significant? What is he saying? Anybody have a guess? Exactly right. He's basically saying, without saying it, I took the blessing 20 years ago. I want to give the blessing now. I took from you. Now I want to give to you. It would be understood then, using that language, if Esau catches what's going on, and I'm sure he did, if Esau agrees to take the gift, the blessing, he's agreeing to forgive his brother of the past. He's agreeing that this satisfies the debt that he caused his brother from before. So Esau can refuse. And he can say, no, I'm going to hold back and I'm going to sue you. <laughs> All right. In this day and age, you know, every once in a while we get these emails. You are named in some sort of lawsuit, you know, and it's always something stupid like toothpaste or something, you know. And they go, do you want to opt out or do you want to be a part, you know? Class a class action. And if you opt out, you're basically reserving your right to, like, take additional further bigger action against them. I'm not interested in suing for my toothpaste, you know? <laughs> All right? So I'm just like, whatever. I don't really care. Esau, he can opt out. He can say, no, thank you, I'm not going to take it, and reserve the right to see some sort of satisfaction some other way. But we see at the verse 11, at the end of verse 11, he does, he takes it. In taking it, in agreeing to take it, he's showing Jacob, I forgive you. He's showing Jacob that your debt is satisfied, that what you did to me, the harm you did to me, I now accept this as satisfaction for that situation. We're seeing then the seal on their reconciliation. Esau is being humble in taking it. Jacob's being humble in offering. Esau could have refused. He could have allowed his pride to flare up and say, no, forget it. What am I seeing? What are we seeing? We're seeing humility on on both parts. Uh, One of the things, too, that we see as the offering of these gifts are given is that you remember when we counted up all the animals that Jacob had amassed to give as these gifts, as this offering, as this blessing? It was huge. It was huge. Our seeds of application, the next one to fill in, I would say freely you have received, freely give. God had blessed Jacob in the land of Haran and given him lots of flocks. And now, just as God had freely given those to Jacob, Jacob is freely giving those to Esau. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give is the fourth one there. And God has for us the same message. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, second half of verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. Is he talking about flocks? No, he's actually talking about forgiveness. God has given us forgiveness. And as God has extended to us freely forgiveness, we should be extending freely to others forgiveness. Paul also has something to say. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We also see in this verse the source of wealth for Jacob. To whom does he give credit for this wealth, this blessings that he's had? He gives credit to God. He says, everything I have is from God. Wouldn't we all be in a better place when we recognize everything we have is from God? You know, you live a little bit differently when you recognize what you have is from God. When you feel like, oh, I got this from my own sweat of my brow and the hard work of my hands, the blisters on my hands. Ultimately, though, it's from God. Mm-hmm. So when you give God the credit for everything you've got, because you brought nothing into the world, can take nothing out. Everything you have is from God. If you live that way, then you're more free to give it because, hey, I got it from God. I'm more free in giving it away. Freely you have received, freely give. And then as we talked about, reconciliation requires humility by both parties. I have that as our last one. 
Reconciliation requires humility by both parties. And then I have this additional, but you go first. <laughs> mm-hmm. We need to be the ones to go first. Because a lot of times, I'm sure you're thinking, if you think for yourself for a moment, do you have anybody that you've burned bridges with? Do you have anybody that you've had a falling out with? Do you have anybody where reconciliation is still lacking? And you might be thinking, no, no, those are in the past. They're just better to be left alone. They're in the past. And we say, then why is the Holy Spirit laying that particular person on your mind? (laughs) If the Holy Spirit's laying somebody on your mind, maybe there's reconciliation that still needs to happen there. Just as God would say, you want a really healthy relationship with me? then you need to take care of the reconciliation that needs to happen. You need to do what you can do to see that reconciliation happens with whoever it is that God's placing on your mind. And it doesn't mean it's going to happen because it takes two parties to be humble. But you go first. I go first. We need to go first. There's broken relationships. And I firmly believe that as we go and as we extend ourselves in humility to seek reconciliation with people that have offended us, people that have hurt us, people that we would say, I didn't do anything wrong. It was all on them. If we were to extend the humility, the part that says, I want to I want to see reconciliation here. I want to do my part. I think God would say, I'm honored by that kind of behavior. And people will take notice and people will say, there's something different about you. What is it? And you might even open up opportunities for people to come to know God because you're doing something crazy. You're living for him in the way that he says to live. So if God's placed somebody on your mind, take the first step toward reconciliation. Run toward reconciliation in humility and forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Actually, we don't. We don't like these challenges. (laughs) But we do thank you, Lord, that you've given us an example. Not just told us what to do, but shown us. Lord, you've trained us up in the way that we should go. Help us, Lord, to go in that way. Just as you showed us what it looks like to love unconditionally. Just as you showed us what it looks like to forgive unconditionally. Just as you've shown us to freely give, just as we've freely received. Help us to extend that to others. You've demanded that of us. And that's hard, but we pray for your help. Help us to go first. Help us to extend the first olive branch in the peace and the reconciliation that you desire, maybe sometimes more than we do. And Lord, we look forward to honoring you, and even in the hard ways. In Jesus' name, amen.